Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Robert Henley has joined us regularly on the show to talk about important news stories that tend to get short shrift in the establishment media, in many cases until they can't be ignored any longer. Bob is an award-winning print and broadcast journalist who specializes on the economy and politics. He reports regularly for a number of prominent news organizations, and you can hear his radio show most Monday mornings on WBAI. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy at Work. And I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Is it another month already? Yes. You were here last <laughs> month, and so much has gone on since. Thank goodness. Well, for you, I, yeah. I would rather that things die down a little bit. Didn't you cover the hearing that Senator Bernie Sanders held for his Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee, in which Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma tried to challenge Sean O'Brien, the president of the International Brotherhood of, of Teamsters, to a fight? Absolutely. A cage fighting right there. Uh, that could have happened had it not been for Senator Sanders reminding uh, uh, Senator Mullen that, Yo, we're a United States senator. Um, that's pretty good, right? Warming up. Uh, but he is a former was, mixed martial arts fighter, so I guess he indeed, was... Indeed, we all bring... Yeah, and I'm a former ballet dancer, but I'm not going <laughs> to try to pull that on the air. Oh, I've uh, seen you I on mean, point. <laughs> that's pretty good. We should stop now. Uh, one, one of the things is that it was uh, an important hearing, which uh, got big-footed by this kind of uh, septic alpha male energy, O'Brien and Mullins had had uh, a uh, a dust up before when uh, Sean O'Brien had been uh, before uh, and involved in a conversation with the Oklahoma senator before. Uh, but that day w- was really supposed to be about uh, the role that unions are playing in reclaiming the lost American dream of the middle class. And so you had someone like uh, Sean Fain. Uh, who has uh, navigated the UAW from this um, uh, being this institution that was totally corrupt, where the president and 16 of the top officers had been convicted, uh, to a revitalized organization, which got this uh, 25% increase for workers, uh, coordinated a strategic strike that took on all big three auto makers for the first time, and strategically only took a fraction of the workforce out, force out on strike. And then, of course, uh, Sarah Nelson, mm-hmm. who's been, uh, you know, leading the charge uh, with the American uh, with flight attendants affiliated with the CWA. And so it was really supposed to be about how these unions are really setting a path for uh, an American revival. And so the data is pretty compelling about what happens when unions pull together, when we act collectively and our collective self-interest. Uh, and it's uh, unfortunately got big footed by exactly these kinds of uh, antics, which is what everybody focused on. Did it look like he was really going to throw a punch? Well, uh, C-SPAN has been the camera operator, I think, was a little bit of, uh, asleep at the switch or maybe it was set automatically. So you saw the. Uh, Senator, who's in pretty good shape, that is to say that his waist is narrower than his shoulders. Mm-hmm. He got up and uh, went to take off his wedding ring, which is always a, uh, uh, a warning that dad is is angry. 
uh, is really going to get serious with corporal punishment. So it was it was disgusting. It was a display of, like I say, this toxic male culture. Uh, and uh, it did give, um, like I say, the sad part was there was a lot of good information and important stuff that people needed to hear about how unions are really advancing the circumstance of the American people um, after, you know, decades of uh, creating conditions that haven't existed since the Gilded Age in terms of this vast wealth disparity. But is it possible that General Motors workers will reject the UAW deal? Uh, I saw some of that reporting. It appears subsequent stuff this morning uh, looks like they will squeeze it out. Um, it is uh, one of the things that is... Uh, you know, a show, uh, it's important to have a little bit of background on this. Going into this, one of the things that had happened uh, was that ever since Ronald Reagan broke the air traffic controls back in the early 80s and just summarily fired them all, organized labor was on the ropes, uh, going down from about one in three households right after the Second World War in the early 50s after the huge production buildup for the war effort, uh, down to about the time when Reagan did that, it was around 20%. Subsequently, it's declined as much as mm. 10%. If you just look at the private workforce, it's down to 6%. It had been at 17% in 1983. And in that environment, the unions, um, you, 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 there were so many headlines, whether it be the Teamsters, UAW, about corruption, where um, corporate interest in Wall Street pressed their advantage, uh, and then you had also union uh, leadership selling out their members. And in the case of the UAW, it was Chrysler sp uh, spread around some $3 million to leadership of the union paying their mortgage, cultivating them. And, and what the UAW would do was create these tiers of workers so that it would take where it once used to take three years of showing up and being on time and doing your job to get to full wage. It was eight years. Uh, and then also we had the auto bailout where the uh, unions, along with the American taxpayers, uh, took, a, you know, the unions took a major haircut. They rolled back mm. the benefits that had really built up that job to be a head of household job and didn't get any of that back. And what we saw was huge amounts of profits for Wall Street, obscene CEO pay and the UAW was left with this fractured workforce where it was no longer a living wage if you were a new hire. So what they solved with this contract, uh, assuming that it's approved, and I think it looks like it will be, what they were able to do is get all that back and basically uh, end the whole tier uh, workforce situation. And I, I would like to really connect this. It's not abstract. There was a point a few years back where um, – we were trying to stay current on things. I was working all my various jobs and I needed to get some extra work. And I worked overnight at an ACME up in um, in Morris County. And I was overnight. I'd done that kind of work in high school. I was still in pretty good shape. Could have probably lost about 60 pounds. But I thought, okay, I'll do this and get ahead of it. So it was a union job, sure. But it paid $9. And the other people mm. that I worked with who were had been in high school when I was in high school and had stayed their whole arc of their professional life at at Acme. They were making $25, but and they had five weeks of paid vacations. But, Leonard, nobody would take that job at $9 an hour. And so that, that good union job had been hollowed out. This happened across the economy and is still happening today. And so I was hoping to get maybe get union health care out of it, right? 
And so what they do is you they work you to like full time. And then the minute you're going to be vested and in the healthcare plan, oh, you're part time. That's the problem. And that's what this UAW contract, I don't know, the UPS contract, I might add, went a long distance that the Teamsters uh, closed on, went a long way to start uh, pushing back in that. And immediately what was funny, they call it the UAW bump. Um you are welcome, as Sean uh, Fain quipped. We saw Toyota and the other automakers that are non-union follow suit. Now, the, you mentioned the third union leader, Sarah Nelson, the president right. of Flight Attendance Union. Wasn't she there to talk about the lack of safe nurse-to-patient ratios that forced tens of thousands of veteran nurses to leave the profession and one in five new nurses to leave in just their first year? Well, that what interesting. She's spoken to that in the past, and they did speak about staffing. She primarily uh, zeroed in on the question of the staffing crunch in general across the economy, which is we have been doing this thing now where uh, after the Great Recession, uh, they really constricted the workforce and then the pandemic hit. And so there's any number of key jobs where they don't have sufficient people and the at the institutions, whether it be nonprofit hospitals like uh, Robert Wood Johnson, Barnabas, uh, have gotten used to keeping those numbers low. And one of the things that did come out of uh, the pandemic is a realization that short staffing in hospitals really set the stage for the collapse of infection control. Because don't you know, keeping people healthy and um, uh, and, and doing things like making sure that you tamp down infections is very labor intensive. And yet we have a system, whether it be nonprofits or that are paying, like in the case of Robert Wood Johnson, you know, we, we've been covering that every week since the nurses there, Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick has been out since August 4th of, of 1700 nurses striking for safe staffing. Uh, what we've discovered is when you uh, cut corners, then you can't maintain infection control people end up uh, uh patient outcome is poor we know from like 2004 california passed state mandated uh staffing requirements and the the literature is clear you had uh nurse uh, nurse retention better nurse retention um uh, patient outcome was improved and it was actually in the long term cheaper in terms of healthcare because people got better and stayed well uh yeah. but yet we have a situation now where uh, capital has been running the table for a long time, but we are seeing labor push back in a significant way. Sarah Nelson was communicating that militancy. We saw SAIU go out in seven states, uh, almost 80,000 workers in seven states in uh, the D uh, District of Columbia against Kaiser Permanente, a huge multi-billion dollar corporation, though it's nonprofit. And we saw them come back after just three-day strike with a 21% uh, uh, pay Ike, thanks in no small measure to the intercession of Julie Sue, the acting labor secretary in the Biden administration. We opened by talking about uh, a senator challenging uh, the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters to a fight. But uh, hasn't there been any number of set twos in Washington in, in the House? Kevin McCarthy is accused right. of elbowing one of the Republicans who voted to oust him. Uh, from the space. Yeah, and he had a body detail. I mean, I, he, I've, he I've denies been the, it. 
But right. then, then yeah. Republican Representative James Comer of Kentucky engaged in a shouting match with Florida Democrat Jared Moskowitz while they were discussing the personal finances of Hunter Biden. Is, is this a new thing or has this always been part of what goes on in Congress? Well, uh, is it like uh, roller derby? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, elbows out? Uh, I think that uh, I heard some apologists uh, for the Congress say, well, they've been down there for 10 weeks. Oh, poor babies. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Mullins did give a lecture about how caning was apparently the the uh, the style back in the 19th century. And he just he regaled one uh, right wing um uh, talk show host about accounts of President Jackson challenging people to duels and physically pummeling in them. I mean, this is kind of where you go when you have this, you've set the bar so low and you have the um, the nominal head of one of the major parties actually using violence as an organizing tool, as a way to show affection to the base. I well, mean, you that's where something we are. to deal with the vermin, don't you? Right, exactly. Get a baseball bat and America loves you. My guest uh, on today's show is Robert Henley, who uh, you probably know from all sorts of other places where he um, contributes to prominent news organizations and uh, has a, his own radio show here on WBAI, and this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Why do you think Bidenomics isn't getting more traction? Uh, Haven't recent polls revealed a lot of dissatisfaction among the general American public? So um, I think that it's funny because I just talked about this uh, to a a longtime uh, speechwriter, uh, for Clinton. Uh, I think the problem here is that there's an echo chamber in Washington that really shapes the media conversation, right? So it's reporters talking to very small circle of people um, who are a privilege and are part of, 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 uh, of politics and doing it for a living. And so they've cooked up this notion that the problem is Americans don't really understand the economy. And they just don't know what a wonderful job President Biden has done on their behalf, poor dears. Now well, we hear about that, it on television all the time. Do people just well, ignore that? Well, well, no. What I'm saying to you is that that's just a bad message. If you want to engage people, and if you believe that you have a burden to persuade them, you don't start by telling them that they don't understand. And what do they say? The saying is. Um, if you want to be heard, you have to listen. And that's what they are not doing. And so the reality is, and we've talked about this before, there is a major disconnect between the stuff we hear about our politics on corporate media and the actual circumstance of the American people. The example would be, we are told that the economy is you know, doing fine and that everything's under control. And yet we know if you just look at the reality, 60% of American households are struggling week to week to make ends meet. And that is, we have in New York City, some 30,000 applications for immediate um, cash assistance that are hanging around because the city doesn't have the civil servants to process it. We have a situation where 
the pandemic relief that was put out there was withdrawn. And so you have a situation where we were supposed to have, remember, build back better. There was going to be a $15 mm-hmm. living minimum wage that went by the wayside. There was going to be universal pre-K that went mm-hmm. by the wayside. The expanded child tax credit that was, that did for six months lift several million uh, children out of poverty. Mr. Manchin said that was you know go to pe- for people to buying drugs. And so what really happened is the people that run Congress that on behalf of the uh, the plantation owners, <laughs> which is what I look at Wall Street. We're like, well, look at them after the pandemic, all fat and happy, sitting at home with their feet up, thinking that they have a great resignation. Well, we've got something in store for them. And so they did. They wanted to crack the whip and get Americans back to work and forget the mass death event that claimed 1.1 million Americans because their government and corporations cut public health. Is uh, Medicare in danger? Wasn't there a Save Medicare rally in front of the U.S. Capitol last July? That's that's just one example of where this disconnect, and so what that was about was that as part of this starving and yeah and and the it's so important to keep in mind that uh at this hearing that bernie sanders convened about the role of labor there were some amazing statistics that were produced one of them that over the last um 40 or 50 years there's been a 50 trillion that's with a t if you're following at home dollar transfer of wealth from the bottom 90 percent to the top one percent wow and so that has been what's been happening. And so in if you look at part of this has been anything that's not nailed down ends up going into the pockets of the super rich. Now, in New York City, what you're talking about is a decision by the de Blasio administration and the major unions, public unions, D.C. 37, the UFT um, and the Teamsters 237 that represent public employees that they could realize $600 million in their hot little hand if they migrated all of the 250,000 retired civil servants into something called Aetna Medicare Advantage, hmm. except it's not Medicare and it's not an advantage. And so they decided to crush the Medicare benefit and then put that money into contracts and into the city budget at the cost of retirees. Now, retirees and there's a broad range of people involved in this, everyone who serves as lunch, civil engineers, cops, firefighters. Many of these people who are living, if they retired 20 years ago, living on, you know, a tight situation, they can't afford the, what they what the city was trying to do to them. And so they've organized in your city as uh, organization of, of retired folks. They have been with, under the leadership of Marianne Pizzatola, retired FDNYMT. They've won several rounds in court. They actually, there's a national movement now to push back on Medicare Advantage in general. Hmm. And that's because the uh, over 50% of the age court that's eligible has migrated into these predatory, and they're predatory. I mean, if you see it that much on television, advertising hmm. Medicare Advantage, we're going to give you a Super Bowl ring and titanium sneakers. <laughs> it is snake oil. Absolute snake oil. Every independent audit that's done of it shows that billions of dollars are overcharged. And the scam is that they tell CMS, which is the agency that looks over Medicare expenditure, 
They look at your chart and they say, oh, this guy, Bob Henley, he's kind of fat and his heart doesn't work well. He's really sick. Give us a premium price to take care of this man. Then when I go to apply for my cardiologist, they all of a sudden put me on a prior authorization and then hide the ball and make sure I don't get access to the care that they've committed to do. And then I might die. That's the way this works. This is the product of Mayor Adams and the Municipal Labor Committee. That's why retirees are upset. Well, also our unions, I was forced by my union, uh, SAG-AFTRA, right. to switch over to Aetna when I left WMYC. So anyway. That's uh, right. Aetna, by the way, the, sla- the, the company that insured slaves and apologized for it but never parted with the dime as a consequence <laughs> of it. Isn't that nice? It's kind of a full circle. Today's plantation was yesterday's plantation. On another front, hasn't Biden's strong support of Israel cost him support among some voters? So um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did flag the fact that there is a generational shift here and that um, there is this uh, there's a growing movement for a ceasefire. Biden is uh, positioning himself to between Netanyahu and the rest of the world, which is a dangerous place to be. And at trying to exercise some level of restraint. But the reality is that as long as you have a blank checkbook, and that's a whole other question, is how, you know, the United States just reflexively uh, throws money around when it comes to the military. And so, you know, that and so that is those alliances that have been well established on a younger generation are questioning. And so while you have this absolutely abysmal and horrendous uh, uh, attack, barbaric attack on civilians, um, uh, Israeli peace-loving uh, kibbutzim that have committed their life to to peace. Many of them actually engaged mm-hmm. with dialogue with the Palestinian community, uh, and that Hamas would target them. Brutal, but then uh, by the other token, people don't understand this concept of this collective punishment and this ongoing, um, you know, pursuit of it full bore bombing carpet bombing at one point yeah. of an urban environment and then calling that like that that works in some way uh and so that's what biden is trying to he's talking about the two-state solution he's trying to uh, uh make sure that netanyahu doesn't think that he has carte blanche to occupy it but the reality is that we let that situation fester for decades like we do in certain spots in africa where we know the human misery is huge and it's just inconvenient for the power structure to actually deal with it. And that's what was happening with Gaza for years. Hmm. Well, a poll, recent poll indicates that American Jews are generally dissatisfied with Netanyahu. So um, that's a whole. Well, it doesn't issue. sound like Israelis are thrilled either. I mean, the other thing that's very important is to put it in the context of what was happening in real time, that Netanyahu was in the process of trying to undo the checks and balances of the democratic society that had a Supreme Court that would stand up for certain values and that that had brought the country to the brink of civil dysfunction where very qualified reservists in the Air Force that they rely on to fly their 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 um, to make the Air Force run were resigning their commissions because he was driving it to the brink. And he also himself was subject to like somebody else that we don't want to talk about, but we have to. Uh, uh, President Trump, he was constantly under uh, the cloud of corruption. And so his remedy was to just flip the courts. He also 
has also had to appeal to the most extreme elements within the settler community who, who really believe that they have a divine right to other people's land. And so he has not moderated that and instead has encouraged that. And I just saw before I came on the air that uh, Congressman Goldman and Senator Booker are condemning acts of violence by J Jewish settlers on the West Bank who are using this brutal attack by Hamas on civilians as a pretext to uh, to do what they want to do there. On another front, you're, you live in New Jersey. How significant is the fact that Tammy Murphy, the wife of New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy, has announced that she's running as a Democrat for the U.S. Senate seat now held by Robert Menendez? She joins two other people uh, who have announced that they're going to run for that seat. Evita, Evita. I'm sorry. I have a little Peronis to blow back. Uh, I, it's absolutely gross. The fact that it even is happening in, in polite company just goes to show you how corrupt the state is that I live in. Uh, just to up the, uh, we do have actually three candidates now in the Democratic nomination, two on the Republican side. Um, well, uh, Andy we have Kim a, is the favorite. Andy, on the Kim, Andy Kim is a congressman, uh, has a, um, uh, distinguished career as a State Department civilian employee who was stationed in Afghanistan, holding, uh, doing his best to hold the military accountable about what was happening there. Uh, then we have also Patricia Campos Medina, uh, labor activist with the Worker Institute um, out of Cornell, and then Larry Ham, who's no stranger to WBAI, a Princeton graduate and longtime uh, peace and social justice activist. So there is a field there, but the problem here is that to replace, to think that the antidote to the uh, allegation to, to Robert Menendez, who, of course, was indicted, then he was uh, had a hung jury, then he's been indicted twice since. Uh, to think that the antidote for that is the, is the governor's wife, who, by all accounts, is a pleasant enough person, very active fundraiser, was at one point a registered Republican. The Times report she was continuing to vote as a Republican when uh Mr. Murphy was Ambassador Murphy, because, of course, that's what we do with people from Goldman Sachs that get to the Democratic Party. We give them an ambassadorship. Uh, so, I mean, that's just how that's the problem here is that New Jersey needs to if the Democratic Party wants to actually win and to get, uh, you know, we we gave up to uh, one Democratic seat when um, uh, Tom came Jr. defeated Tom Monowski. Uh, we have uh, another uh, former Democrat. Jeff Andrew became a Republican in honor of President Trump down in the South. If if New Jersey wants to really contribute to flipping back the House and uh, using the electoral process to snuff out the insurrection, then they've got to do their part by engaging voters. Having Tammy Murphy at the top of the ticket, well, wouldn't be the top of the ticket, but leading in that Senate seat mm -hmm. is not the way to do that. That's not the way to get voter engagement. And it also would, and I have a piece about this in Insider NJ, we have in New Jersey, and it's probably true other places, but it's really pronounced here, the privileged love to hoard power. That's what this is. It's just grotesque. I have no other way to describe it. You can't tell me that there aren't any number of more qualified women. Let's say we should make it a woman, and gosh knows it's mm. time. It's just insulting to the rest of the population. But, of course, I'm sure she'll be on MSNBC tomorrow as a likely nominee. Well, you point out that voter turnout in recent elections was abysmal, and 
You suspect that in New Jersey, where elected officials have been known to look to get their family members into office, the power structure likes to keep it that way. Well, it is. They want to keep the entry level low. And so in the case of like, um, like I say, think of New Jersey as uh, in terms of um, like England without the nobility. So we believe that to the well-heeled, all good things should go. That's just the way. Obviously, God meant it that way because they already got stuff. They should get more stuff. It makes it easy sorting it out. And so when Senator Menendez bestowed upon his son, Bob Menendez Jr., was given title to the congressional district seat that his father had. I mean, this is that. And so only 29 percent of Hudson County voters that make up that most of that district turned out to vote. Win for everybody. And the political hacks that are part of all this that have consultancies and real estate deals tied into making sure their guy gets in. They're fine with it. They do not want to reach outside of the comfort zone. If you're not in the 50-yard line box at the Met Stadium, they don't want to know you. And they don't want you to run for anything. But uh, abortion rights did bring out voters. On the other hand, few other things Concerns about health care, climate change, criminal justice, taxes, and much more doesn't seem to be a motivating factor. Well, in the, in the last election, we had uh, legislative races, so that's always a downer. So uh, the only thing on the ballot was the uh, 80 assembly seats and the 40 Senate seats. Democrats had an advantage going in. They picked up several seats. One of the things that happens is that um, – in one race alone in the district that I'm in, uh, you had Senator Vin Capal, who is a Democrat. He was uh, um, it was a tight district in the sense that in the prior election, Murphy actually lost this district. And then two the two assembly running mates that were Democrats also lost. Gopal pulled it out this time. Eight point eight million dollars was spent on this on this race. And you had like. Uh, like 40,000, small, some small anemic number of voters are turning out. So it almost feels like the more money we spend, the fewer voters turn out. What about uh, people I don't know. who continue to believe that Trump won the election in 2020? Are they less likely or more likely to vote? Do we well, know? I mean, they, there is no doubt that in New Jersey, uh, uh, Trump in 2020 increased while well, he lost the state. He increased his 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 uh, vote totals and actually carried several counties. So that's very much alive uh, in this in this state. It's not uh, maybe enough to elect, you know, a senator or a statewide office holder. But like I said, there are still uh, three districts that the Republicans hold. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. a regular radio show here on WBAI as well on most Monday mornings. Um, he uh, Morning. We've been on a roll. We haven't been preempted yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I, 
I've been preempted a number of times for fundraising, and um, I it, it uh, causes me a bit worry because people tune in to hear me, and they hear something else and think, okay, well, Lopi's no longer on the station. Right. Preemptions uh, can be uh, can be counterproductive. But anyway, that's a whole other matter. Um, how's the book doing? Uh, Stuck Nation, can the United States change course in our history of changing profits over people? So I'm in the process of updating it and switching publishers, which is always a little anxiety-producing, but I... I want to make it more like the next edition will be a field guide to how to uh, uh, mobilize those voters that have not felt engaged. And I'm taking the instruction from Reverend Barber about doing everything I can to help awaken the sleeping giant, the 80 million folks that are low wage and low wealth that um, are reflect like a, a, almost a third of the electorate. And yet politics for a whole host of reasons that we've some of which we've spoken about chooses not to try to engage those folks. But indeed, um, the third reconstruction that this country needs that Reverend Barber refers to uh, can only start once we bring those people to the polls and once we have them at the table to make this country keep its promises. Before we move on to some other major stories, um, can I just take a moment to uh, remind our audience that WBAI is an important voice in all of this and uh, that we would love to have your support, whether you become uh, a, a member by sending in some money or by becoming a BAI buddy. Um, the numbers to call are uh, 212-209-2950, or you can go to our donation site, give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org. Um, doesn't New York City face both a homelessness and migrant crisis that's likely to get worse because the Adams administration is pressing ahead with a, a mid-year austerity measure um, uh, while co federal COVID aid dries up and, and tax revenues lag? Well, yeah, that's, and as a matter of fact, um, I'm playing hooky a little bit because I was supposed to be monitoring an OMB briefing uh that is going to lay out this uh the parameters of what's supposed to be a five percent program elimination to eliminate the gap peg uh yes uh one of the things that's happened is that some of which we've already covered but uh new york city has some challenges uh post pandemic uh there is a reality that there's been a shift and change in terms of foot traffic and commerce in terms of how people use the city you do have uh the fact that remote work is a further notice fact of life which means that revenue flows are going to have to adjust accordingly uh you also have some long-standing uh, uh problems that have been brewing long before the migrant issue surged onto the front page of the tabloid so uh, i would say under my whole career uh, going back to the you know the twelve years of Bloomberg, uh, and even uh, and even through De Blasio, we had this situation where uh, housing was turned into a luxury good, and to a large degree, that's a consequence of a captive political economy, where the real estate interests kind of control um, elective office and and those who get into it, 
And uh, so now you have a situation where even people that make the city run, people that have uh, 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 moderate paying jobs in civil service, uh, nothing fancy, $50,000 a year, $45,000 a year, even with two of those incomes, it's hard to live in the city of New York. And so they have to live outside the city or take on second jobs. So it's become a place that's hostile for working people and working families economically. And so uh, one of the other things that happened because the federal government declared the pandemic over, they pulled out things that were helping people who were having trouble before the pandemic get by. And so we're seeing that play out. We have an ongoing truancy problem uh, that really needs to have major federal support. We need to be doing block grants across the country to continue to support our teachers and educators because what happened during COVID was a traumatic event that also changed the patterns of uh, of young people. And so now we have a situation where we never suspended public education like this. There's no real precedent for it. When we did it, uh, we all of a sudden have the situation where young people are not attending school. Uh, we have We always had this problem of disconnected youth, which is now really getting to be a major issue. By disconnected youth, I mean young people that are uh, in those teenage years. They're not in high school. They're not working. They're hanging around. Uh, and so this has kind of created this, this chaos, and you really needed to have ongoing federal support because it was the failure of the federal government to have public health infrastructure in place that created the climate where, I mean, they estimate that 300,000 people died as a result of the pandemic because they didn't have health care coverage. Mm. So, so, like I say, there was a body blow to the population and the powers that be have just tried to march on like nothing happened. And so that is really playing out here in the city. Add to it the fact that the federal government has not taken responsibility for immigration uh, look at the fact that, the, and we don't connect these issues. The United States was involved in a further notice war on terrorism, where we went to war on the world, destabilized nation states, and created one of the worst refugee crises mm. since the Second World War. We have free trade agreements where we impose cheap corn on places like Chiapas, Mexico. And then we're upset. Like, why are these people from Mexico wandering around in my Times Square? Well, if you didn't keep feeding uh, the multinationals and you let subsistence farming exist in these places, then maybe they'd hang out where they live. But once you create a, a competitive race to the bottom, you're going to have some dire consequences. I'll never forget I was covering a story when I was at WNYC about day laborers that were from primarily Mexico that were standing around looking to get work and landscaping. And um, they were being uh, messed with by the police, even though we get that double message to immigrants like we want them get in my car. Can you do my work? And yet we'll put you in jail if you if we think that, you know, if we're a racist. And one of the things when I was uh, talking to some of the uh the folks that were standing on the corner, I found a guy who told me that he was a former pediatrician from Chappas huh. and he could make more money for his family as a crew chief than taking care of children where he lived. 
That is the perversion of the neoliberal economy. And so, yeah, does neoliberalism, where everything goes to the rich, make a mess? You betcha. But it's much bigger than the Roosevelt Hotel. But that's the mess. That's what happens when everything goes to the rich people. Well, according to council members Gail Brewer of Manhattan and Diana Ayala of the Bronx in Manhattan, also Shikhar Krishnan of Queens, when winter arrives next month, won't tens of thousands of the city's most vulnerable residents be at a greater risk of eviction and homelessness? Well, so what's happened is think of the city of New York as this massive uh, machine and it has cogs. And so those cogs are civil servants. And so we're down around 30,000 from where we were in the de Blasio administration. Around 300,000, 330,000 folks are running the city. We're down uh, in those job titles. In some cases, really critically, like the Department of Design that certifies and builds the city's uh, infrastructure they're missing 125 engineers and architects. So there's been a drop in in staffing? Is that what's Right, right. And so what's happened is you have uh, an imposition, things like filling out forms so people can get their SNAP food stamp benefits, making sure that people can get um, the uh, emergency cash assistance, making sure that senior citizens can avail themselves of the various credits that are available so that you can stay in your apartment or in your home. All of that is labor intensive. And so when the pandemic happened, uh, we had, first of all, maybe four to five hundred civil servants died because of their occupational exposure. But then also anybody who was up around our age or even younger who had any time in decided to retire. And so there has been this attrition that's happened. And so the de Blasio uh, administration started to happen a little bit there. And then, of course, when Adams came in, it really played out. And so what they're doing is they're representing to the council that some of these positions they're not going to freeze and they're going to hire. And yet what they're also doing is keeping them vacant to try to keep the cash on hand, because when it comes to the way that Adams runs the city, he's much more of the Bloomberg school, which is money important, people not. And so that's the kind of budgeting decisions he's making is preservation of the privilege and the power structure and if the people get squeezed, it happens. Uh, haven't the average times to prepare vacant apartments and to turn them around more than doubled over the past year? Yeah. So that was one of the things um, C- Council Member Brewer, chair of the Oversight Committee, used the mayor's management report, which has been around, I guess, 40, 50 years. It's a very important document in that it has parameters that all the city agencies have to try to measure to get a sense of their performance. And so that is something that uh, NYCHA, I, I think NYCHA now says it's down to like 4,500 vacant apartments mm. that NYCHA has yet to turn around. And so in their defense, NYCHA says that they are doing things like getting rid of the lead, uh, uh, asbestos abatement. But that's right. In a city that has tens of thousands of homeless people on any given night, there are thousands of apartments that the city has that it can't get it its own way or can't expedite quick enough to put back into production to get these people into shelter. That's right. My guest is Bob Henley, and uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, in the, uh, the time that we have left, there's just so much more we can talk about. Military spending, that's now almost $900 billion a year, 40% 
of what's spent globally and more than the, right. the next 10 countries combined. Also, the global climate crisis legislation sponsored by Representatives Barbara Lee and Mark P. Pocan to cut the Pentagon budget by $100 million, roughly- 100 billion, right. 100 billion, oops. Right. Uh, and uh, that's roughly 11%. And I probably have left a couple of things out. What do you think is, uh, what would you like to address? Well, I would say we tie those all together because one of the things that- um, to me is just so um, incoherent is that there is a supposedly concern about the climate crisis. And we are told that we have to change everything about our lives, how we sort our garbage, uh, what kind of vehicle we drive, if we drive, uh, even what kind of our diet, all of that is supposed to be on the table in a serious effort to deal with the climate crisis that's upon us. Why However, isn't solar energy being pushed harder? Well, well, uh, but here's the thing. The reality, though, is we continue to make war as if there was no limit to the Earth at all. Mm. And that, my friend, is a serious malfunction of the mind. And so we are right now, uh, there's a bill uh, in the city council called Move the Money, which is attempting to have at least the city council uh, get a sense of the council resolution to do exactly what um, those members of Congress, uh, Lee and Pocane, would like to do, which is just have the Pentagon reduce its spending by 11%. That would be $100 billion, which, by the way, is what they're looking for in rough numbers for the supplemental appropriation for Ukraine in Israel. And I don't know why anybody hasn't proposed, like, okay, if you think this aid to Israel and Ukraine is important, and it well may be, then why shouldn't the Pentagon find, and here's a word we never put next to the military, economies? Mm -hmm. And so the other problem with this, I don't think people always, it's not communicated about, is this is borrowed money. This is not money that's laying around. So we're mortgaging the future of our children and grandchildren to buy these lethal weapons that are only going to accelerate climate change. This this is the work of people that are not serious. And uh, why aren't more people speaking out about that in Congress? Well, there are the usual. Are you they know, protecting uh, their their own areas of? Well, there is. There's no doubt that you had Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader. Uh, pitch the idea of Ukrainian aid, not because of the importance of sending them to Russia, which is something we need to do, but because this was a great jobs program for the United States. And the fact that the United States was merely just replacing the the military stock that it had on hand that it had already shipped to the Ukraine. I do think we need to connect the dots here and that there needs to be a realization that, that this kind of profligate military spending uh, does keep us in this situation where we have these chronic social issues. There's a reason why this is what Martin Luther King was connecting in his lifetime, which made him so unpopular with the power structure, was the relationship with the 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 violence of poverty and the violence of militarism. They are connected, and they both need to be dealt with. A report titled... The Consequences of Political Inequality and Voter Suppression for U.S. Economic Inequality and Growth, incredible title, says that 
Those who enjoy market power are not coincidentally often the same citizens who enjoy outsized political influence, creating a feedback loop that perpetuates economic inequality, instability, and slow growth. Right. That that was uh, some research that I came across when I was writing my piece for Insider NJ called- I, would, I wouldn't have known uh, about it if I didn't read you. Right, right, right. Uh, the, the piece was entitled Hoarding Power and Privilege in the Duchy of Jersey. Uh, and what I was what I realized is that when you look at the counties with the lowest voter turnout, it turns out those are the, the counties that are identified in the United Way's Alice survey, asset limited, income constrained, but employed. The people that struggle uh, week to week to get by, they're not poor. But they they have trouble. They have to make choices between making the car payment, childcare, or their mortgage. In some of these counties, when you take the the uh, below the poverty level and Alice, they're a majority of the people that live in a place. So the economy is not working for those people. The turnout in those places is depressed, and so not surprisingly, who turns out to vote? But the people that got stuff, hmm. the people that have something worth holding on to. So if we want to transform society. Our mission has to be to engage those people who can come to see that the first step in actualizing their own life is in saying that their vote matters, that they matter, to paraphrase Jesse Jackson, that they are somebody. In just a few moments that we have left, do you have any theory as to why the polls are often so inaccurate in terms of how the final election is going to come out? Well, I would say, of course, and this has been this has been pointed out uh, by others, but uh, the the shift from landline to cell phone that's part of it. Uh, and I mean, then all also, those people, I, all those people on the subway, are actually answering polls, <laughs> right? But what I'm saying is that they're the way that they that uh, pollsters and political scientists understand they bring their biases into it, and so um, I think we saw some of this with. Uh, what was happening with that poll that was widely reported about Trump leading mm. uh, Biden in key swing states, right? And I saw some pretty smart criticism that talked about how small the sampling was. Um, I, I'm more interested in what, uh, how people, what motivates people to get engaged. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not surprised that, and also you have to remember that these organizations increasingly had their own agenda. So it's important to know is, well, what was the remit when the pollster went out? You know, what were they supposed to find? I'm interested in finding out what we have to do to get listeners more engaged in supporting public radio. But that's a whole other matter. Well, we want them to call 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. If you're someone that feels disappointed when you get your cup of tea or your cup of coffee and you're waiting to hear the dulcet tones of Leonard uh, Lopate, the wrong contour of the 21st century, and instead <laughs> something else is on that's selling a product that you don't want, well, then now is your chance to call to make sure that doesn't happen. 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. How'd I do, Leonard? Very well. Well, we both used to work for another public radio station that's now laying people off. So... This is not just a BAI problem, the economic issue. No, no. But of course, it is one way if, you know, we do know that people are uh, struggling to get by. 
And there's probably a lot of causes that you're sympathetic with. You can't fund all of them. But if you have to do a triage and pick one, whereby supporting an institution, all these um, perspectives have a platform, uh, then this is a good place to start. So that's why it would be really great if you could call 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. And thank you again, Bob. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Meanwhile, people can hear you every Monday morning. 7 a.m. And work bites. Make sure to Joe Maniscalco and Steve Wisney and I have a uh, uh, have a, a, a website, labor uh, website that covers all that's going on uh, on, on labor around the country and here throughout the region. Thanks so much. Larry. And wait, also, they can find you in Salon. Where else? So, uh, Salon, Raw Story, The Village Voice, MSN, you name it. I mean, that's the mm. nice thing. These days, you're all you right at once and get, yeah, yeah, pay 10 cents and it runs everywhere. Thanks again, Bob Henley. And that brings us to the end of our show. We've received many inquiries about why we haven't been providing recent shows as podcasts, and we thank you for your continued support while we work out the technical issues with our podcast carrier, uh, and we hope that it'll, it'll be resolved very soon. But meanwhile, if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. And right now, uh, as uh, we've been saying, Bob and I, we need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. So we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever is comfortable for you, for as long as as you wish. It allows us to plan for the future and uh, as a way of showing our appreciation, we are be happy to send a BAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Uh, again, the number, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. And don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the station, thank you. And thanks for listening. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Justin Michael Williams and Shelley Tegelski will discuss their new book, How We Entered Racism. Thank you.